I'm listening to this audiobook right now on burnout in the medical profession, and it is staggeringly close to home, like to the point where the first, I don't know, half an hour, I had to pause it because I kept crying because I was mm-hmm. like, oh my God. This is- <laughs> yeah, it's called trauma. <laughs> Did I write this book? <laughs> uh, yeah, our public service systems aren't exactly set up to provide oh. uh, healthy balance. Um, no. You know, which is sort of the problem of for-profit anything. Yeah. Even with public systems, you know, there's still people that are being exploited to limit costs because we're at the, especially in Alberta, mercy of a capitalist system that constantly wants bigger gains for less money. And that includes from public service workers. It's just, it's, it's un unobtainable and unsurvivable in the long run. And so that's why none of you make it. uh, No. And that's why I was texting and talking to you about the, the podcast project that I want to work on in addition to this one is about burnout and finding folks out there. It's Will that be under the Art Attack brand? This is Art Attack. Art Intervention, um, but the Alberta Podcast Network, uh, our little network. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, who's, oh, who's right. that? Us. Oh, like, us. <laughs> who's Alberta Podcast Network? Oh, right. It's our fake one. It's really, I found maybe about four um, people so far that are interested in telling their story as part of the pod, but they're all women. And I find that interesting. I want, I need Mm. more um, representation of other folks. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's something worth looking at there, isn't there, about why certain genders are you know, more exploited, I guess, work-wise or whatever you want to call it. Overrepresented in the Overrepresented burnouts. in the exploitation <laughs> yeah, spectrum. Yeah. Uh, Almost like we expect a lot from uh, traditionally female roles in society while also not expecting to give them much. Yeah, that sounds about right. But anyway. Welcome to being a homemaker. <laughs> so, Ben. What's what's new with you? Read any good stories lately? <laughs> That's the worst segue we've ever done. Uh, I know. Are we talking about blah, our bear? Blah. Our bear. We wanted to talk about this. This was such a wild uh, story we found, and we want to share bananas. it with the Dork Matters audience because it is B A N A N A S in the words of one Gwen Stefani. Brought to us by John, who the letter J, Johnny Two Thumbs, has suggested <laughs> this one. Because he sent it to me and was like, this is the most fucked up thing I've read in a long we time. We are absolutely open to uh, dorky suggestions. If yeah, y'all have absolutely. anything you want us to look at and possibly discuss, hit up our email box. That is everyone at dorkmatterspodcast.com. So what is it about this bear? Cocaine bear? Is that who we're talking about? Or something it's else? It's basically like turn of the century cocaine bear in Japan. But there's no cocaine, just Japanese crazy bear. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, give us the re- breakdown. What's this bear? What's what's up with this bear that we need to talk about? So I liken it to if you've ever seen the movie Brotherhood of the Wolf, where this wolf is terrorizing the community. It's like that, but in Japan and with a bear. And so basically this bear gets a taste for human flesh and doesn't just kill a bunch of villagers, but like destroys them like rips their head from their body and it's the most like has vengeance it's like going for the babies and the women and the pregnant Mm -hmm, women mm -hmm. and it's awful and it's true it's brotherhood of the wolf was like a silly movie this was legit happened in when was that 1915 in japan in uh, hokkaido hokkaido 
Hokkaido? Hokkaido. Hokkaido. Which, by the way, as an aside, is where some of the best pumpkins come from. The Hokkaido pumpkin is absolutely delicious. I have cooked it for meal in a pumpkin before. That sounds delightful. October feast here in North America. So this all started December 9th to 15th in uh, 1915 in Hokkaido. And over the course of these days, a male brown bear attacked a number of households, killing seven people and injuring additional um, folks. The instance has been referred to as the worst animal attack in Japanese history. And one of the things that John and I were talking about was, you know, 1915, it's not that long ago, but it's still long ago enough that there probably wasn't phones. How would you get help? And so if this bear is attacking you, how would you tell people you'd have to get on a horse and just go running? And um, the houses that the people were living in had like paper walls and were it was just so easy for the bear to get at people and just The situation was primed for a bear massacre. It really kind of was. It's so a tinderbox sad. of coincidence that led to a fire oh. that we call bear disaster. Like I almost want to put a trigger warning on some of this because as you start reading more of the stories, it's it's horrific. It's awful. To the point where after you sent me this story, I read about it. I got back to you. I'm like, there's no way this was actually a fucking bear. And it was. Well, and so this. We don't know. But it was, okay. Do we know so, definitively? Yes, because they found the bear and they cut its stomach open and found the remains of humans inside of it. Uh, but who found it? The two families? Well, and so let's get in. The Montagues and Capulets? Let's finish the story a little bit and then we'll get into our conspiracy minded okay. things. <laughs> so just maybe a bit of a trigger warning. We won't get into the huge graphic gory details. But basically, December 9th, 10.30 a.m. A.m. This bear shows up at this farmer's house where the farmer's wife and baby were home. And the bear attacked the mom and bit her. Okay, I want to just let's just say that the bear attacked the the mom and the the baby baby gets dead. The the baby dies, sadly. December 10th. Again, I don't know if you've ever put a morning. bear against a baby before, but it's not exactly well, an even matchup. And one of the things that, like John was saying, is that there was this theory that the bear was woken up early um, for the hibernation. Well, that's what I right? was going to say. It's December whatever, right? And bear bear was having sleepy nap nap and somebody had too loud of a party or something. And then the first thing the, he ate was sadly this little baby. And so then he got a taste for human flesh and was just like, going for it. Oh, this is awful. It's like ice cream. <laughs> Just he awful. got his picnic basket. <laughs> the fastest way I know to get a picnic basket. I mean, it just it goes on. I'm not going to read everything here, but like, suffice to say that. Hey, boo boo, help me find a picnic basket. Oh, oh wait, there's just people. I guess they do instead. Boo boo. I feel like that's in poor taste. I don't know. <laughs> Yogi the bear eating people. Okay, here we go. Um, so on December 14th, uh, a band of villagers basically goes after the bear after it's killed all these people. And they take it down, and they basically feel as though it was a giant bear. It was 8.9 feet tall, um, over 700 pounds. And when they cut it open, um, parts of the victims were found in its stomach. It is said that the villagers dismantled, boiled, and ate it as revenge for the victims who had been devoured. While at the time, the skull and some of the fur of the bear were kept, but were later lost. So, 
conspiracy theories, Ben. What do you well, got? Well, first on, let's let's stop for a second. And they ate the bear that ate their families. And I feel like we are just shy of cannibalism oh, at that point. That's a, a little bit. Like, that's, that's how a, you end up with like weird, yeah, demonic creatures running through the woods. Like you don't. Maybe it, that's how the bear started in the first place. The bear was already a person who had eaten another. It bear? was a were bear. <laughs> well. This is why I'm saying it's like Brotherhood of the Wolf because Brotherhood right. of the Wolf was basically like this Spoiler. creature that was, yeah, if you haven't seen this old <laughs> movie, the it's a wolf-lion thing that's been trained to attack people. But a part of me was like, was it a bear or was it just like right. people that were had, had beef right, with each when other? when you read this story, it's like it goes from one farm, then it goes to the other farm, and then after it kills at that farm, for some yes. reason it goes back to the first farm and starts killing there again, and then back and forth. And like the whole time, my little conspiracy brain is going, Constant. this is not a bear. This is a family that had a wild murder blood feud and then decided to cover it all up so that vengeance could stop by lying to their children and being like, yep, the bear did it. Yes. Like if you're not good... Then the bear's the going to come. Gonna, the bear's going to start the f- eating people again. Yeah, it just feels like a cover-up. Like, a couple of elders were like, oh, we got to stop killing each other's babies and shit. Like, and, let's pretend it was a bear the whole time so we don't keep seeking vengeance on each other. I kind of wonder. But then at the same time, too, there's all these documented stories of similar type things happening around the world. Like, there was this um, attack by a tiger in russia did you ever hear about this story no it's i'll send you i am actually surprisingly uh poor red on russian tiger attacks this is i heard it on npr once and was like oh this is awesome gotta be true that's what they say if it's on npr it's it's gotta be true so it's um this tiger in russia was it it basically hunted down this well-known tiger killer um hunter and it was stalking him from village to village, knew where he was, wound up killing his brother because they looked so much alike. And then when the the tiger eventually took this hunter out, like he didn't eat him or anything. He just like ripped his face off and then like sauntered back into the woods. So there's all these stories that you keep mm-hmm. coming across of mm-hmm. these animals seeking out vengeance on people. We've even talked about it on the show with like the whales attacking. Is the it the orcas, yeah. The orcas, right? Like they're yeah. not eating people yet, but... They're... But they are attacking yachts. I know it's interesting. It's uh, I was about to throw down with like you know I feel like animals have been no more greatly wronged than they are at this current point in history. So yeah. like why aren't they attacking on mass if this is a thing they can do? And we do have orca boats, orca yachts, orca yachts. So yeah. So maybe they're onto something. Um, yeah, maybe the instances of bear attacks is just down because you know we can lock our doors now and our walls are made out of. Uh, thicker stuff mm-hmm. it's a wild story it's so i'm not sure what i want to be more true that a bear <sighs> could go mad and eat babies and people and like people would beg for their lives from it uh or that it was a blood feud that they're just covering up by saying it was a bear it was a bear it was a bear it was a bear i do think that it needs to be remade because there i think the there's been as tons of adaptation book. not as a children's <laughs> book but as a graphic novel or like a limited run streamable series or something and have someone good like did you ever watch kingdom on netflix i did not (gasps) the korean zombie period piece oh it was so good ben it was so good i just (gasps) finished succession though which kind of felt like a zombie piece um i think that i shan't watch that because there's a lot of boardroom images for me and that just seems like why am i watching work yeah yeah, that's fair. I mean, it's it's unrealistic work if it makes you feel any better. Oh, that's good. I it's guess. a lot of weird stuff. Some of it feels real close to home, though, so don't bother. Hmm. 
I felt like it tripped at the ending anyhow. So we want to adapt this this yes. bloody horrible bear story into a children's book. <laughs> Not until a children's book, an adult like a graphic novel. Well, see, but I think just one of the greatest segue. things about children's books <laughs> is when they are actually a little bit dark and a little bit scary. I think that's when they're at their best is when well, they're a little bit. That's a good point. Like Little Red Riding Hood is basically yeah, the yeah. same kind of story. Or even we talked about it earlier off air, but John Clausen's uh, The yes, Skull. Yes, that. But, so I'll hold on to my comments about The Skull because that is an exceptional book and I would love to talk more about And we're about not even it. talking about modern illustrators today. No. We are, we'll tell you what we're talking about when we get back from our wonderful uh, theme song that plays live and just doesn't have to drop in every time. Welcome back to the show. This is Dork Matters, a dorky podcast for dorks. I'm your dad, dork host, Ben Ringle, and with me is Lexi Hunt, your Ed Dorkator. We are here to talk with y'all about legendary children's creators, illustrators. It's hard to say. Uh, I want to yeah. talk about the people that, you know, write and draw, and there's not a super great word for it. Oh, you got a little... Pardon me, I'm a little stuffed Uh-oh. up. It's dry as Cold fucking here. Cold flu season. Oh. Let me have some Gatorade. It's what, got electrolytes, crave. which is what oh, my I body see you're, needs. Oh, I see you're going for blue. That's the only flavor that's really worth going for. Uh, as long as it's got the zero on it, I'm fine. Yeah. I'm there with you, buddy. Feels a little close. Um, what were we saying? Yeah. So, like, cartoonist is the the yeah. the terminology that's usually used for somebody who writes and draws in a children's book capacity. Um, mm-hmm. I can see how that could be a bit confusing for people not up on the illustrator world but like Mm -hmm. saying just illustrator itself isn't accurate enough no and here's a fun little dork or nerd fact for you ben Mm. um no dork fact dork fact the the word cartoon came from um the long strips that artists would create in the renaissance times when they would do um before they would put the image into plaster like the wet plaster on the wall they would create these long scripts and those were called cartoons. And so that's mm. what, when you see a cartoon in a newspaper, it's referencing that. And I learned that because when I was in England, many, many years ago, I went to an exhibition of Michelangelo's cartoons and I was like, what? Yeah. It's he a bunch of a modern car- artists who wrote about <laughs> Michelangelo cartoons. Well, yeah. that's what I was kind of, ex- I was like, Oh, at the V and this is interesting. And I walked in no contemporary. No, it was just like, images and a couple of the actual existing cartoons that Michelangelo came up with for the Sistine Chapel ceiling. And I thought that was pretty cool because I like art history. Do you drop that all the time being like, did you know that the Sistine Chapel is actually made with cartoons? I don't because (laughs) I I think people would find that insufferable. So I just say it to myself in my head and in the car, I'm like, that came from this... For the Renaissance period, I just say it out loud to myself because I want people to like it's, me. Don't do that. Just be who you are. <laughs> they don't like you at your most True insufferable. Dork. They don't deserve you at your less actually less insufferable. Um, and if you want to get all art history on this shit, comics goes back even further. The idea of of mm-hmm. script goes back to like what 
columns from earlier Mesopotamia. Mesopotamian times. You get those uh, like ongoing strip circles around the columns. Yeah, and you have that from like Hammurabi's code when it mm-hmm. had like the iconography telling us like what the rules of society yeah. were. And the progression of time via the pictures along the transversal of the you know, the yep. scroll that wraps Adrian's around. column. We also things like the Bayou Tapestry that shows like the history of like England all on mm-hmm. one long tapestry. It's really cool. Comics are everywhere. Awesome. So cartoons yeah. are everywhere. But that's not what we're talking about. Storytelling. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, we lost the plot. Uh, we're talking about... No, we're talking about storytelling. We're talking, we're talking about, about storytelling. narrative. Yeah, good point. Yeah. We're talking about the most legendary uh, creators, artists, illustrators, uh, cartoonists um, mm-hmm. in the in the, in the the kids' lit world. Um, should we just throw in? Should we start talking yeah. about them? Our faves, the best, the ones you can't forget. Yeah. This has been a long time coming since we're both art school losers. Um, I'm surprised we haven't done this sooner. And like the number of people that we know, uh, we will do a part two to this, which is actually uh, more contemporary uh, illustrators Mm -hmm. as well. Uh, Many of which we know, which is wild. Mm -hmm. We're lucky to know many professionally working uh, illustrators. Yeah. I'm really in in looking at that list. I was thinking like, yeah, there's a lot of really incredible people out there and it's, it's cool that, in some capacity to know them. Yeah, it is really cool. People I don't yeah. know though. Uh, let's let's start it off. Maurice Sendak. Oh, I mean, where the wild things the are. The heavy hitter, the night kitchen. Uh, I guess this would be a great spot for a uh, <laughs> a arcade fire drop, Jess. Why why put in the song when you can just sing it? I don't know what the words are, but to be fair, nobody does. That's, yeah, I mean, that is very accurate. Maurice Sendak. What is your favorite Maurice Sendak title? In the Night Kitchen. I have not read that one. What's it about? Well, so I'd say that In the Night Kitchen comes really closely behind where the wild things are. Um, But In the Night Kitchen, it's about this little boy who has a dream, I guess you could say, and he winds up going to this kitchen in his dream where he creates a world out of bread and milk and eggs and he's building this whole world and it's one of the first representations of a naked child in a book too and so there was a lot of controversy about it because his little dick is out (laughs) and I remember a teacher pulling the book out of my hands when I was in elementary and scribbling it out and I remember thinking like oh but you told us not to deface books what are we what are we allowed to do that now i don't know do you know if uh more recent publications have edited uh the little dicky out i don't know that's a great question i I don't think i've seen uh, a recent copy of it in a long time because it was um like the 70s like yeah. mid 70s i think it was released that's a wild thing a lot of these illustrators we're going to talk mm-hmm. about uh are, are obviously dead now so they come from a time where people were not critiquing their their choices as uh pointedly as uh, Mm -hmm. maybe we do now based on things like social values but i was reading that a lot of these books have ended up with like some of them removed in the case of dr zeus and and some of them edited uh for text or content in the case of like richard scary and others so that's a very interesting thing i mean i'd want to know if in the night kitchen maybe got that the other thing is a lot of these books we get handed down so even if they do get edited we end up with (laughs) Some really questionable versions of, of certain books from, from back in the day. Mm-hmm. When we had kids, my partner and I, um, we ended up having 
just boxes of books that came from her family and we had to go through them and be like, nope, 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 nope. Yeah, nope. <laughs> this one's shitty. Nope. Oh, everyone here is dressing up as uh, indigenous people as costume. Nope. And we'll get rid of that one. Yeah. That one's got to go. <laughs> okay. Like, oh, yeah. And like, you have to make a decision. Do we have a discussion about this and what's happening here? Or do we just uh, put that away and, and move on to other books? Yeah. And the thing that I liked about Sendact is, is that a lot of the books address topics that were not necessarily mainstream at the time. Like, did you ever read the book uh, Brundabar uh, that he illustrated? I remember reading it as a kid, but I don't. I couldn't give you the, the thrust of it. So I actually studied Brundabar in one of my classes um, at UFC when oh, I was doing she my, goes again. Yeah, one of my <laughs> degrees. Um, but it's an illustrated retelling of this opera that was um, from the 30s that was for children. And it was performed at a Nazi concentration camp over like 50 times or something like that by the children of the concentration camp every time the Red Cross would come to inspect uh. the camp to see if it was like a humane, legit practice. They would put on this big farce pretending. This is dark as fuck. I know. And they would put on this opera for the Red Cross. And the whole story is these two little kids are trying to get milk to their sick mother and then they have to like befriend people along the way to help them with the milk. And I'm not sure if this is true, so I could be wrong, but I believe that the concentration camp where this was being retold, the children afterwards were sadly wiped out. And oh, so the sake. book that Sendak and others created was in tribute and memory to the children of that concentration camp and of all the children that were lost Whoa. during the second world war. Well, and this is sort of my point that I was getting at before we went to the theme song is that like, Obviously, that one is much, much darker, but even something like Where the Wild Things Are has a yeah a sort of, I don't know if sinister is the right word, but maybe like from a, a, a kid's point of view, sort of sinister, like the monsters are going to eat him up because they love him so much and like they don't want him to leave. The mom just like sends him to bed without dinner. Like the parenting is suspect. Kids' picture books, well, kids' stories have always are been always... kind of dark because it's a, it's a telling yeah. and I know... Like right from like fairy tale yeah. stuff like Hansel and, and we'll Gretel. get into more contemporary things but like the um a promise is a promise with uh I don't think it's Robert Munch but I feel like it's Robert Munch it is Robert Munch by the way I just saw it at the bookstore it today. is Robert Munch okay yeah um like in Inuit tale about like if you're not careful on the ice then you're gonna get pulled under well sorry I shouldn't give him credit completely for this but he uh yeah. he assisted I guess in the writing of it if I remember correctly there's a couple but names before there's so many children's books that come from these really dark tellings and tales that were first kind of created to scare kids away from doing something that's going to hurt them or kill them because mm. you go near the thin ice you're gonna fall through and you're gonna die yeah, and so, or their morality, or their warnings. Yeah. I think they're at their most interesting when they are those sorts of things, but from like the perspective of a kid, which is, I think, what Maurice Sendak mm -hmm. did really well in something like Where the Wild Things Are, which I think exemplifies sort of the the feelings that Max has without the words yeah. to express them accurately at the frustration of a situation of parents trying to control you and tell you what to do, but ultimately understanding that. You need them. <laughs> and one of the things that, like, it just came to me right now and thinking about, like, that teacher scribbling out the dick of the little kid in the night kitchen. 
that you have the story like Brunderbar, which shows that like children are capable of great resiliency because they're exposed to horrible situations. And so we, we have this telling that's a tribute and an honor to these children that lived through hell, like absolute hell. And we're so concerned mm-hmm. about the nudity of this child. And it's not even like a bit, it's not like he's, it's a very small picture. It's not graphic. It's not pornographic. It's just as he's flying through his dreams, his clothes come off and he becomes a baker. And that's what we're more worried about. We're more worried about being like offensive by the nudity than rather like these deep, horrible stories. And so children's picture books, like what are we, what are we more worried about here? Mm -hmm. But anyway, Maurice Sendak, like what a heavy hitter. Legendary. Uh, I was trying to recall uh, one of his, his, uh, his quotes, his gruff quotes as he is a. Yes. Famously curmudgeonly figure. Uh, But instead, I'll just tell you that I love chicken soup with rice. Um, It is up there for me. In January, it would be so nice. Well, slip, slip, slipping on the ice to be sipping on chicken soup with rice. It's like the whole year like that. And it's just weird and fun and otherworldly and a little bit weird because there's goblins Mm -hmm. and ghosts that sort of get involved. And it's just sort of eerie, too, which is, again, sort of the... Mm -hmm. The beauty of, I think, Maurice Sendak. Should we move on? <laughs> no, I just want to tell you, I really quickly wanted to see if I could find anything. But I did see an article for um, the 10 grumpiest authors in literary history. And Maurice Sendak has won it. <laughs> <laughs> He's up there. Oh, up and there. there's um, a video link that we can, I'll share with you and we can put it in the show notes where you can watch it. But there is a tag that says, warning, before going into the link, be aware he's a very grumpy guy from time to time and strong language will occur in many of his quotes. And I kind of love that a children's picture book and writer, like author, is has a tagline of being like, just so you know, he's going to swear. Even an e-book. What do you say about that, Maurice? them is what I say. I hate those e-books. They cannot be the future. They may well be. I will be dead. I won't give a I uh, also wanted to touch on with Maurice Sendak is that he is gay, uh, was gay, and his long-term partner, Eugene David Glynn, uh, they were together forever. Um, 1957 to 2007, I guess, at Glynn's death, um, Mm -hmm. which I wonder like when that exactly came out or became more well-known and how that influenced sort of his career or, you know, how it influenced his writing as well as like... That is not a enlightened time to be a homosexual I, in North America. So I had no idea that he was well, gay. We are nothing if not educational here on Dark Matters. That's true. And I, I will just say, when I worked at McNally Robinson many years ago, I was in charge of the displays in the children's section. And uh, one day my my boss asked me to put together a Marie Sendak display, and she was like, go big. And so I create, I like, I redrew all these different scenes from a bunch of the books in cardboard and I cut them out and I made this huge diorama of everything. And I got so many compliments on it just because like it was fun and the kids Mm. wanted to play (sighs) in it. And then we just took it down one day and I was like, well, shit, it was so much fun to make. And I was so sad when we got rid of it, but it was all cardboard. So we just recycled it. Uh, 2008 is when I guess he dropped in a New York Times interview that he was uh, gay and had been with his partner, uh, psychoanalyst Eugene David Glynn, for 50 years. Ooh, I bet they had great conversations. 
a psychoanalyst and a children's picture photographer? I bet Sennheck said nothing to him ever. <laughs> All they'd do is argue and he'd be like, don't try to psychoanalyze me. Just like a true, like, grumpy old couple. <laughs> yeah. Like, stop it. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. Oh, we love you, Maurice. It's just, it's just so interesting to have such an influential uh, creator like that, that had basically to keep that aspect of his life hidden until he was he was done, basically. Yeah. Cause yeah, anyway, yeah, that's that's awesome. Good pick. Uh, let's move yeah. on. Let's do one more before the break. Okay. Let's go on to our next one on the list, which is Theodore Geisel. Theodore Zeus Geisel. Uh, some people know that his pen name was Doctor Zeus. Not everyone realizes that Zeus was actually his middle name. I didn't actually know that. Yeah, uh, Theodore Zeus Geisel. Zeus Geisel. Zeus Geisel. Sorry, I'm reading phonetic pronunciations on Wikipedia. Zeus <laughs> Geisel. Everybody knows Dr. Zeus. Uh, we've got the Grinch. We've got the Lorax. Mm-hmm. We've got the Who's. We've got Horton. You know, famously <laughs> racist, um, which it has come to light. You know, some people will argue that it was sort of, what's the right terminology that I'm looking for here? Like where you are racist due to society being racist, but weren't like xenophobia. Yeah. Like, like you weren't actively thinking that you were being a terrible person. You just were because everything around you was, I don't know. I don't know what the right terminology is, but yeah, I mean, famously supported Mm -hmm. internment camps for Japanese people during world war two said some pretty heinous shit. Apparently I did not know this until researching for this episode was that Horton hears a who is, uh, meant to be sort of a post war occupation, uh, story that is supposed to sort of express his changing views about Japanese, uh, Americans and Japanese people. But, uh, like to that, he, was moving away people from his... people people, no matter there where they come from or what they look like. Um, that's interesting. That's um, meant to be a a metaphor for that, but I have not done enough work to just say, yes, it is. I would hope that. But yeah, he's got a series of books that are <laughs> just gone. Um, his, his publishing company and his estate announced that a whole bunch of books were going to be discontinued mm. uh, in 2021. Oh, yes. I remember the outcry because people were like, oh, now you're canceling Doctor Who. Don't take our Zeus. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, Doctor Zeus. Doctor Who hasn't been canceled yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll list the titles. But, like, when they announced this, we went through our library mm-hmm. from, you know, those those gifted books. And we're like, oh. Yeah. Oop. Yep. Oop. And we'd already pulled a couple of these um, for some of the – racism that was in them um but like you know let's get past that at least for the rest of this discussion uh i mean it's worth talking about you don't get to exist as an influential figure without the uh the counterpoint as we've talked about the the damage that you do but you know he is iconic his work is iconic Mm -hmm. you can say his name to literally anybody and they know who well people like they they teach him in school they're like every single grade three, four kid probably does a unit on the Lorax because then they get to learn about trees and environmentalism and all these other things. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a huge part of people's child. Like I learned how to read, reading hop on pop. Uh, it was, yeah. Green eggs and ham was the one for me. Yeah. I just want to point out the sort of like, I don't know if sinister is too hard of a word, but there's always this undercurrent in the best children's books of sort of like unkindness like green eggs and ham specifically um 
It's just like, I will not eat them. And like, they're just like two people getting really angry at each other. And one person like yeah. trying to force the, their will on the other person. And I just find oh, like there's... Oh, look, cat in the hat. Like they're trying to get this cat out of the house. And he's like, nah, I'm going to mess it up. A <laughs> uh, like, oh. very interesting thing that I learned about here is the idea that cat in the hat is actually a uh, a representation of a black person uh, in their depiction and oh. in the minstrelry of their actions. Uh, there's a really interesting book really oh that i've never heard that before that's really interesting uh it is was the cat and hat black and it is by philip nell from diverse books uh this is one i think i'll pick up because i find the idea of that sort of codified approach to sort of Mm. segregation and that sort of discussion to be interesting and somebody taking that on as a literary piece uh fascinating yeah. So yeah, Dr. Zeus has some 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 darkness there. There's a video of a guy rapping along to Fox and Socks or Socks on Fox. I, I do like this new kind of resurgence or whatever of people rapping Dr. Seuss or children's picture books over top of like Snoop or like <laughs> Wu-Tang Clan or something. I'll, I'll Again, that'll be another thing for the show notes. Any sort of parody rap should be done over the spaghetti song from Eminem. Dun 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 dun. Because the, the guy that does it does such a good job. West Tank is his name. I love it. Like I just find him so good because I don't, he's just good. Hi, I'm Wes, and today I will be rapping "Fox and Socks" by Dr. Seuss. Take it slowly. This book is dangerous. Fox socks, box knocks, knocks in box and fox in socks, knocks on fox in socks in box, socks on knocks and knocks in box. The protagonist in a Dr. Seuss book, like especially these sort of like early rhyming sort of ones, are just uh, kind of irritating. Yeah, very puckish, puckish harassy. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, do you have a favorite Dr. Zeus book? I don't know, actually. I think that the Lorax probably is comes pretty close to my favorite of the Dr. Seuss books. And then it's a it's kind of mm-hmm. like an unspoken agreement that, oh, the places you'll go is like a graduation gift to whoever in education. And so I've been gifted that one a couple times. And but I think the Lorax is probably my favorite. What about you? Um, are you my mother? Oh, that's a good one. Yes. Uh, it's probably the earliest one. And it's one of those ones where he uses Theodore Geisel or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Theo L. Sieg or whatever. One of his pen names. Which was the one that he specifically used when he would... Oh, Lesig. That's okay. it. Theo Lesig. Um, which he would use when uh, he would work on a book that he was not illustrating. Somebody else was going to be illustrating it. Oh, here's a great one. There's a book that was published by Dr. Seuss in 1931 called The Pocket Book of Boners. Okay. Is boner what we think of it as today or is it an earlier definition? Uh, Let's see. I just love the idea of a Dr. Seuss book of like just trouser tents. Uh, Just like every page is a different one. Some are tall and some are small and some cannot be seen at all. (laughs) Okay. So this doesn't tell me anything. The Pocket Book of Boners contains 22 illustrations of boners, howlers, blunders, drawn. So 
I'm, I'm looking it up again. Okay, earlier definition where it's like uh, somebody making a mistake or a joke, if I remember okay, my I think that's, English correctly. It has to be that because there's no way <laughs> in 1932 they were like... There's no way racist old Theo was drawing a bunch of ding-dongs poking out of pants. <laughs> well, apparently this is what illustrators do is just draw dicks. Some are happy, some are sad, and some are just... Some are sad and some are... There playing. to make you mad. <laughs> Uh, I want to write a Dr. <laughs> Seuss boner book now. <laughs> let's move, let's move on. We need to go to to halftime. Okay. To da na 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 na. Who's that Pokemon? All right, I got one for you. Okay. The silhouette is a flat line that goes up into okay. a spiky set of peaks. What? That's it. Is it a bottom, tree? The bottom is a flat line. Goes up, yeah, and then a spiky top. Is it the crown that Max wears in Where the Wild Things Are? It absolutely fucking is the crown that Max wears. Oh! You nailed it. Who's that Pokemon? It's the crown that Max wears. Way to go! That's awesome. I'm very proud of you, hey, Lex. Only two guesses. Thank you. Only two Thank guesses. You, well done. Because at first I was like, is it like a Lorax so thing? It could have been a Lorax yeah. thing. It could have been the axe that the Lorax packs in his sacks when he goes to Jack's off his boner. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of boner talk. Moving yeah. on. How could there not be after you told me that? I'm fact? sorry. <laughs> We're going to one of my all-time personal favorites, Eric Carle of the Very Hungry Caterpillar. The Hungry, Hungry the Caterpillar. Very Hungry Caterpillar. I feel like you have to read his books in that, like, posh accent. Oh, really? Yeah, I always feel like, the hungry caterpillar. He's American. He wasn't British. I don't know what it is about his books. They just, brown bear, brown bear. <laughs> oh, wow. That's not how I read it. Uh, brown bear, brown bear. What do you see? Oh, I see yeah. a little blah looking at me. I used to be able to recite that book from heart because uh, I read it so many times to my kids. Yeah. Mm. Uh, actually, the same with uh, Sendax, uh, chicken soup with rice. I was able to like basically do that whole thing without looking. Thankfully, that space has now been mm -hmm. repurposed for facts about, I don't know, soda. <laughs> Eric Carl is an American <laughs> author and illustrator, uh, very famously, The Very Hungry Caterpillar. But he, like, yep. we have just so many of his books now, and they're all fantastic. Yeah, he's pretty prolific. Like, he was basically like, pumping out books like one a year from the time he started yeah i mean i i was looking for the number i couldn't find it you got there quicker 70 books 70 books he wrote my god with many of my books i attempt to bridge the gap between home and school to me home represents or should represent warmth security toys blah blah, blah. anyhow yeah i don't know why i was reading that it just popped up uh one of my favorites is uh the book about the ducks where there's like 10 ducks from a, a rubber duck factory mm. And on their way, being shipped in a um, in a like a shipping container, they fall overboard, and the ducks fly off in different directions. And it's this melancholy yeah. story that's actually really sort of sad uh, about all ten ducks and what happens to them. And the final duck sort of finds its way to a family of of real ducks and sort of settles in with them. So I guess it's got a happy ending oh, at the nice. end. But yeah, a lot of those ducks are very like anthropomorphized and like. It feels like a real loss that they just go missing or, or disappearing. Um, but yeah, Brown Bear, Brown Bear, uh, it's wonderful follow-up. Yeah. He didn't actually write those ones. Those are written by um, 
uh, Bill Martin Jr. Okay. Um, but it's it's one of those cases where, as the illustrator, I feel like the book is is really his. His his work makes that mm-hmm. book. It's not the same without it. Well, and I've said this before. Like illustrators, I feel like I've always associated with comics, picture books, whatever the true. I don't want to say talent because you still have to be an accomplished writer, but I think the person that brings the story to life is the person who illustrates. And so all the more power to people that write and illustrate, but I think it's because I've of the art background. I've just always kind of been like team Mm -hmm. illustrator. I feel yeah, absolutely. And like, you can see examples of this um, when we'll get into at some point, probably when we do our follow-up episode about more modern artists Mm -hmm. is uh, Robert Munch and Michael Marchenko. And I would argue that, Michael Marchenko actually yes. makes those books, Absolutely. carries those books. Um, Agreed. I have a few with other illustrators, and they are not the same books. They are not that that same world, that same universe, that same energy. Yeah. Like he he does not get enough credit for what he does in those books and how he carries those stories. No. So, um, but we will we will get into that when we get there. We'll get to him. Yeah. Someday whenever we're able to do our modern faves because Michael Marchenko is still working occasionally with Robert Munch, if I understand correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Eric Carl, just, I think just beautiful. He, to me has a lot of like Charlie Harper vibe in some ways. Mm. Um, yeah. But the thing I, I really wanted that. to talk about with Eric Carl and, and Richard Scarry and some others. Um, but like this idea nowadays that if you go into a bookstore, you can find new Eric Carl books, finger quotes, where they have hired somebody with nowhere near the same amount of uh, artistic mm. skill to either repurpose and collage his work or do really shitty mimicking of his work that really yeah. like I picked up a scratch and sniff Eric Carl book and was just absolutely disappointed to find out that somebody just like had oh. tried to replicate. It wasn't just like the very hungry caterpillar with like sense added in for fun. It was like, a poorly written knockoff with like really bad illustrations that uh, obviously are. That's so yeah, sad. Yeah, have the facade of, of Eric Carl's sort of color and line work. But like, mm-hmm. if you've ever seen somebody pretend to do somebody else's work, it just doesn't ring true. Like, the shapes aren't no. right. The way the textures lay on the shapes aren't right. The person isn't thinking about like how Eric Carl used his his color and his strokes to define the shape. They're just sort of like, Oh, yeah. he has a scratchy pattern, so I'll lay a scratchy pattern over top. And then the more I looked into this, the more you find it, especially with like Curious George books, modern Curious George books, like in the yeah. style of so-and-so. And so you get some really weird, weird stories that these estates are pumping out to keep those properties going. Yeah, it's really kind of icky, isn't it? Yeah. Like I, there's – in art education – one of the things that I loathe is projects instead of exploration. And so like, if you're listening to this and you're like, but I do that, then like, you know, what? all the more power to you. But me personally, I thought it was gross because it was just, I'm teaching you the style of somebody else mm-hmm. now go recreate mm-hmm. it. And so it was constant, like for early childhood type art classes. So when I taught kindergarten art, the parents always wanted like a very the hungry caterpillar style art where we made the caterpillars because the kids got to paint and then they practiced cutting out the shapes and that is really good for child development. I think that's fun. But at the same time too, like it's there's a, a difference between like exploring a technique and being like, hey, there's mm-hmm. these artists 
and illustrators and people that you've maybe seen before that use this technique versus just recreating. Because in that same vein, then they'd want to do like um, uh, Norvell Morisot art next. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. And I actually got into an argument with a teacher when I was working for the city because she did Norvell Morisot um, pastel pictures with her classes and she would teach them the style. And I was like, "I, I can't ethically support that because of the controversy, the abuse, the appropriation that that poor man went through and his estate continues to go through because so many people recreate the style. Wow, I am not up on my Novel Moreau uh, controversy. Morso? Yes. Okay, so Norvell Morisot was um, this artist. He had a very distinct style and lots of people even said that his style was not super appropriate to be sharing with outside folks because he would represent like the Thunderbird. And so there are some groups of people. Oh, he's a Canadian. Yeah. Oh, I know his work yes. now. And uh, yeah, I've seen it yeah. about a million times uh, yeah. hacked and Absolutely. thrown together by people. The big controversy was that towards the end of his life, when he was not very well, he was just kind of cranking out pictures and selling them for super cheap. When So people were taking advantage of him. And then there's so many knockoff reproductions where people were pretending them to be accurate, that they that mm. he actually made them, and they're selling them for full price when they were just made by some person in their garage or something. And they're still to this day, I think maybe like six years ago or something, there was an art student from OCAD. There's a whole fakes and forgery section on his Wikipedia. Yes. Yeah. Um, there was a student from the Ontario College of Art and Design who graduated in her thesis piece was basically recreating Norvell Morisot and she talked about how like you can be influenced by a person's style and that's basically the history of art and it's like yeah but no <laughs> no it's not it's not the same well we are teetering on a discussion of you know Dolly it, and yeah. uh, AI art uh, that's and, a whole other thing and uh, how they have fed their their systems by stealing yes. work and pumping them in without compensation to artists, uh, which is the big issue. Yeah, I think. absolutely, it's a huge issue. Well, I did not know about uh, Norval Morzo. I've seen his work. I did not know about his mm-hmm. history. So, thank you for sharing that. I did an episode about him on my my other podcast, Art Intervention. Oh, you mean Art Intervention, <laughs> the podcast that uh, we all love to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> that hasn't created an episode in a long time, but is going no, that's to you've been busy do something dark soon. Matters, to be fair, yes, <laughs> and and doing adult job, which you know, uh, don't say adult job. That's I mean, you know, just day job. Yeah, day job, job is probably job. better. Adult job suggests that you have like an OnlyFans or something. Don't go looking for that, folks. <laughs> uh, it does. It does not exist. Not that there's anything wrong with sex work. I no, want to be I'm, explicit I'm, about that. I just sure. think that I'm you're setting up people it. for yeah, exactly. <laughs> Lex is not doing it. Uh, not doing sex work. You, you all, I bet you can find somebody named Lexi Hunt out there doing it. Uh, it's just not going to be uh, our Lexi fun Hunt. Fact, <laughs> fun fact, Ben. Uh, one of my name twins out in America used to be a stripper, but is now um, a senator in the states, and she's. I, I support her wholeheartedly. I love her career. What an arc. <laughs> And then she's going to retire so and be Eric, like, I'm going Eric, back to stripping because I love it. Eric Carl. We were talking about Eric, Eric Carl. Carl. Do you have a favorite Eric <laughs> Carl book? Not really. I think the the Very Hungry Caterpillar is probably where I where I land with him. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. That's fair. Are you um, near the brown the de- bear? 
or the ducks? Uh, I think so. The yeah. grouchy ladybug is very good. I actually, no, the ducks one is fun. I like it. It's mm-hmm. sad, but um, the grouchy ladybug is a good one where the ladybug keeps going from like animal to animal and like trying to start shit with them and start a fight and then like backs down immediately with each one until finally I think a whale like smacks him with the tail. Perfect. Good. See, it's that dark sort of like undercurrent again. Like how is this a kid's story? It's just like some little dude fronting and then getting his ass kicked or the very busy spider, which I find Mm. kind of like hypnotic and poetic, if you will. I like that. Yeah. Uh, Let's keep going. We have who's next on our wonderful list. I think it is the busy world of Richard Richard Scary. Scary. I'm going to be really honest in that Richard Scary books, for some reason, made me feel sick to my stomach. Oh, wild. I don't know. what. Like, I can't tell you. What do you think it was? Like, so you just didn't enjoy them? It's not that I didn't enjoy them. I think I found them overwhelming. I I can see that. There's a lot of color and a lot going on. Yeah, Busy Town is like a place I wanted to live. The apple copter, lowly worm. Like, it was like, this is my jam. I want, like, just everything everywhere i want to spend like you know an hour looking at one picture and finding everything that's being drawn that sounds like i was surprised to learn that dude is american um given how many people wear lederhosen in his i thought he was german Uh, okay that's interesting he he moves to switzerland later on in life um okay but yeah yeah from boston massachusetts that's i had no idea i'm learning so much today i remember when i thought massachusetts was massachusetts I, I If I think about it too much, I can't say the word. It's a fuck of a word to say. It's really difficult, but it's <laughs> worth trying. Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Oh, I can't do it. You got it, yeah. Massachusetts. Massachusetts. It's like there two sets, but okay. with chew. Two sets of Oh, if you're American eyes. and we're saying this really poorly, let us know. I mean, with our thick Canadian accents, yeah. <laughs> hey. Richard Scarry. Richard Scarry. Yeah, I I always thought that he was European. Uh, so did I. Um, this is one of those books where, like, I found out that his best ever books, like, that are part of the busy uh, busy town stuff, uh, a lot of them got heavily edited. Uh, in some cases, to add gender parity to more traditionally represented, mm-hmm. like, binary roles uh, or to remove <laughs> offensive costumes from certain places. Um, okay. I don't know. How do you feel about that? Do you feel like editing the book is a good choice or should we be explaining why these choices were made to people, to kids? I'm kind of in the, I'm in the camp of disclaimers, Mm. um, that you continue to publish the book as is, but with a disclaimer at the front and or back of the book, basically being like, here's why we are continuing to publish the book in its entirety. Like, obviously, if it's, like, promoting hatred and, like, the disenfranchisement of a group of people, I don't think that should be there. But if it's a person that's wearing, let's say, like, a headdress for Halloween, I think it's important to say, like, in the past, people did this and now we don't because X, Y, Z. So that we have a learning opportunity to say that, like, growth is important, but you need to demonstrate growth. And I think it's important to see, like, where we were and why we don't do that anymore. Yeah, the Tom Sawyer conversation isn't it yeah um it's yeah, hard to say because i like the bit. idea of adding gender roles in i mean if you're still publishing these books and like modern audiences are reading them like i like the idea of having a discussion about that but like i also like the idea of just showing like you know a mom and a dad in the kitchen washing dishes as opposed to just the bomb i don't know I would not be as neutral on something like Tom mm-hmm. Sawyer, which is like a really... I think it's important for representation. I mean, you can just make a new book with representation as well. 
yeah i don't know if you need to but i guess it's the idea that they're still being published like they're still in publication like these aren't old books that like i don't know i guess you could still Mm -hmm. just reprint them with a foreword like you said i'm not sure how i feel about this i guess that's okay yeah. They change pretty stewardess to flight attendant in the language. I think it depends on the book. Yeah. Like little things like that. Like, what? Are, sure. Like, why does it have to, it, like, that type of thing doesn't bother me at all. But if they were to be like, if they're, if they're coloring out the dick, <laughs> then a part of me is like, well, I think it's more important for you to step back and wonder, like, why are you coloring that out, but still telling the story. And that's an interesting one as well, because the dick itself isn't the offensive issue here. It's not to, uh, like in this case with Richard Scarry, they're removing uh, like finger quotes, cowboy finger quotes, Indian costumes that characters are wearing. Yeah. Or the pretty stewardess flight attendant, but a, a penis is not an offensive thing yeah. uh, in and of itself. And in the context of the book that you're telling me, it's not an offensive thing. So Mm-mm. like, yeah, that one, that one seems even stranger to me. Yeah. They added a male character into the kitchen to, you know, promote both parents being in the kitchen. Well, in, in the night kitchen, it's only like the, the cooks were the males. They yeah. removed the foreign legion. Is that about, I don't, you know what, oh, yeah. whatever, sure. They removed the French foreign legion. Yeah, let's like, that's a whole other topic. <laughs> we won't get into the French foreign legion, um, but there are some criticisms to be made there. Anyhow, um, it's hard for me to pick a favorite Richard Scarry book because to me, they're basically all the same book and they're just like wild pages upon pages. Yes. Like, where's Waldo? There's a uh, lot. Yeah, it just feels like all of them are just like yeah. wild and have weird characters and are lots of fun. Um, like I basically can't remember the names of any of them. But my kids really like the one where the pickle tanker car gets flattened. So that's... <laughs> I like that they like that. The pickle car that gets driven by one of the pigs. Yeah, they love it when it gets run over. So that's fun. Okay. All right, let's keep it going. We are on beatrix potter another one that makes me have like visceral like it just makes me feel sleepy like everything about beatrix potter yeah that's fair just like and i had so much beatrix potter stuff growing up like i feel like everyone did like we had music boxes like that's how we fell asleep my mom would wind up our music box that was like the three rabbits and it would play a lullaby and i fell asleep to that and then i had sticker books of uh, Beatrix Potter and then I had the box sets and but at no time could I actually tell you the story I just remember it being like ever present in my house <laughs> so these are good examples of that sort of danger and sort of darkness because you know like Peter Rabbit going into the the garden Mr. McGregor literally tries to murder him yeah you know Jeremy Fisher almost gets devoured by a giant barracuda or whatever like oh, yeah. real danger real scariness yeah. um they're beautiful books, though. The illustrations are, as you say, sleepy, but, like, iconic. Yeah. Yeah, like, you would be hard-pressed to find anyone who doesn't know which rabbit wears a little blue jacket, you know? Yeah. There's so much about, like, everything about Beatrix Potter to me is, like, Victorian. Like, that's what Victorian Edwardian England is to me, is Beatrix Potter. Oh, it was the, I don't know what the right term is, the heyday of yeah. the little animal people we get the wind in the willows yes. and all that stuff yeah wearing their little their little oh. petticoats and short jackets and their little sun hats driving oh. automobiles nobody had pants nope oh some Should of them we be had re-editing like editing beatrix potter to put pants on these characters some of them had pants didn't or they? to draw dicks on them i mean one or the other <laughs> 
Can you just imagine like Peter hopping around Mr. McGregor's garden with his little dick hanging out? You know, it's weird because the men, like the male presenting animals didn't have pants, but the females all had like long skirts and petticoats full, full and dresses, shit. Yeah, all the down. Yeah. down. Like it's, it's so fast. Someday we'll get into a gender analysis. Oh God, I'm just looking at this toad's tea party yeah. illustration and it is like just everything i love about like world creation but to me that is like such an english picture so beautiful like england like it's it's beautiful like the watercolor mm-hmm. everything's very pristine and neat and tidy and i i do wonder how many people were inspired like i think about Everyone. the red wall series like Everyone. so many people are inspired by beatrix potter to create these like really amazing animal like watership down like there's mm-hmm. just so many amazing over and over again you're absolutely right they're just a right. legacy um just the most influential if we're going to crown somebody mm-hmm. and then you know we get renee zellweger <laughs> who's just who stars as beatrix potter in in the 2006 film miss potter like could they not have found an english person is she that. not English? No, she's not. She just keeps playing English people because she was uh, Bridget Jones Bridget as Jones's well. Bridget Jones' diaries. But she, she was, was not. Bridget Jones' diary. Mrs. Diary. But Ms. Zellweger is actually from Texas. Texas? She is Texas. Yeah. Hard dirty. Yep. <laughs> okay. Uh, I guess Mr. Jeremy Fisher or whatever it's called, Jeremy Fisher is probably my favorite. I love, I love a frog in a hat. Or in a jacket with a fishing rod. Uh, do you have a favorite Beatrix Potter? Just the tail of Peter Rabbit. Seminal. Let's move on. Clement Hurd. Do you know Clement Hurd? Nope. Good Night Moon. Oh, Good Night Moon. Um, I've, I've read Good Night Moon, but that, I think that's yeah, about all I know. And The Runaway Bunny uh, are his two uh, most famous works with Margaret Wise Brown. Hmm. Which if you've ever seen, there are versions of those two books that are done by other illustrators. And they are just not what they are without herds work um Mm. i'm thinking specifically of uh, at our science center there's an installation at the moment which is a good night moon installation oh that's interesting it's like an interactive story thing where you sit down and listen and then walk around the room and touch the stuff that's in there and like it just like it, it was very heavy on me just how much of that does not work without his illustration without somebody else's that like sort of weird yeah otherworldly trapped in time feeling does not exist yeah, I can get that. In the censorship sort of vein of this discussion, uh, he has a very famous author photo where he's holding a cigarette. And uh, I guess in republications <laughs> more recently, they have edited his cigarette out of his hand. Of course. Yeah. So that's that's amusing. That's wild. That's pretty much all I got to say. Um, dork, dork. I basically just know a few of his books with Margaret Wise Brown. I don't know any of his independent work or the work he did with his uh, – his wife, uh, mm-hmm. Edith Thatcher heard, but they worked on actually quite a lot together and I'd like to check them out. I think the runaway bunny is my favorite out of those two. Good night moon is a, you know, a classic. Everyone can recite Everyone it, but the runaway bunny is great because it's this angry little bunny. That's just like, for no reason at all, just like, fuck you, mom, I'm out of here. And then the mom is just like, no <laughs> like, matter where you go you. or what yeah. you're saying, I'm still going to be your mom and I still love you. And it's, it's beautiful. And also a little bit. A little poignant. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's move along uh-huh. then. Let's go to E.H. Shepard. Oof. This is, we'll, we'll do this one quickly, but uh, Ernest yeah. Howard Shepard is known for his anthropomorphic animal drawings uh, that kind of Again, yep. defined the wind and the willows and Winnie the Pooh. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that those were one and the same. 
person. Persons? People. Absolutely. Um, just, you know, obviously there's many editions of Winnie the Pooh and Winnie the Wills that have been done with different illustrations as well. But I feel like the ones that you see in your mind when you think mm-hmm. of those two, that little black and white sketch of Pooh with his big tummy hanging out of his tiny little yeah. red shirt. Well, it's not red. It's just a line drawing. So Yeah. It, there's no color yet. Yeah, that's actually Lee E.H. Shepard. And I would say another one that's quite influential. Um, all right, let's move along. You don't have yeah. any huge love for E.H. Shepard, and we've got more to talk about. I wouldn't say that I don't have love. I, I, it's just I don't know. Uh, two more big ones, actually. Oh, I Okay. Sorry, that wasn't supposed to be shade. No, I was no, just I messing didn't. with you, Lex. <laughs> Lex, just... why do you hate E.H. Shepard and all I his don't. work on Wind of the Willows and Winnie the Pooh? <laughs> I just know how much you love... You're like a true Wind in the Willows fan. That's like your jam. If I could get away with making a podcast where I just read part of the Wind in the Willows to everyone. Uh, you could. Every time, every episode, I would. I don't want to do analysis. That's okay. All right. That's I just want to do an audiobook one chapter at a time. Do it. Why not? That'd be great. It's public domain. Uh, because I hate talking that much. Oh, okay. Well, then. Uh, Winnie the Pooh. All right. Let's keep going. There's two that I really want to talk about. Yeah. You put somebody on this list whose work I love and didn't really realize that I love. Uh, and that is Alderico. Am I saying that correctly? Yes. Alderico. So Alderico. Or Count Alderico. Wrote one of the most imp- accounts account, of, apparently, of art. An Italian count. <laughs> he wrote one of the, and illustrated one of the most important books of my childhood that my sister and I were in love with and we would keep signing it out from the library and we would fight over it. And it was the Rainbow Goblins. Again, bit of a trend, but there's some the goblins in the book do some very unsavory things. Their dicks are out at some point. They're drinking. It's dark as shit, too. It's super, super dark. It's very like It's dark. They drown. Like it's got some R.A. Salvatore kind of vibes to it. Yes. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Like there's lots of a lot's going on in these paintings, and they're like these rich oil paintings. Oh, they're so vivid. They're so, so beautiful, and so much is happening. And yet unsettling at the same time. Yes. And so the whole story of the Rainbow Goblins is they're stealing the color from the world. Mm-hmm. And, I, and they become greedy. And again, it's a tale about like greed and, you know, taking more than you need. And not saving the beauty for others. And I just found it so, so gorgeous and haunting Mm -hmm. and scary. And kind of in line with, like, um, I think lots of artists who happen to be women of our generation were obsessed with The Last Unicorn. To me, this is in the same realm of The Last Unicorn. In that, Um, like, haunting, sad... And I will say, like, a little bit further to that point is that I know of this book not because... Like my parents would never have allowed something this sort of like demonic looking in the house when I was a kid. I know about this book because it's Fiona's favorite childhood book as well. (gasps) Yay. Oh, full stop. I love it. Yeah. So I was introduced to this book very early in our relationship at her parents' house and it is, it is masterful and weird and wonderful. Uh, It does have a sequel called The White Goblin. Mm -hmm. And then we all recognize. uh, Which sounds hilarious. (laughs) White Goblin. Oh, I mean, you know. (laughs) Goes with Zeus's Book of Boners. Do you recognize his style from any major mojo, uh, motion picture? Ben? We cannot do a conversation about this without talking about the never-ending story. Never-ending story. Oh, 
like so much of if you've seen Neverending Story, it, it's the same style. It makes so much sense too. Like haunting, sad, like super detailed. Yeah, oh. it's like the eeriness and the creepiness, the palette. Like very rich, very like um, ephemeral, very hard to like, very dreamlike, and so much of it reminds me a little bit of Brian Froud. Mm-hmm. Um, when we start getting into the like um, dark crystal labyrinth esque type worlds, mm. same kind of dreamlike quality. So I love, love, love um, the Rainbow Goblins, and I think if you haven't read or looked at the work of Elderico, then you absolutely and should. the way that it does define sort of the never ending story is fantastic as well. It makes me think of actually the Fifth Element, which might seem like a weird connection, but mm, you get into uh, Morbius being basically the the design driving force behind uh, the Fifth Element and how that that world of the fifth element uh, takes on sort of a lot of his vibe from his comics and his work, maybe not so much the pastel colors, mm-hmm. but the stylings and the shapes and like even just the giant metropolitan future setting, which I think yeah. is fantastic. But yeah, uh, I didn't know that Alderico did uh, so much design work for the never ending story until we, I was prepping yeah. for this episode and I was just like, the moment I read it, I was like, fucking, of course, of course. Yeah, absolutely. It makes so much sense now. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Uh, my favorite book is the rainbow goblins because that's basically one of two that are famous enough for me to know about. <laughs> it's you, you can't go wrong. Um, I love it. Yeah. There's one more I wanted to talk about before we bounce out of here, and it's Ezra Jack Keats. Okay. Are you familiar? No. Well, I recognize the titles, but I didn't know of the artist until this moment. Okay. So The Snowy Day is the most famous Caldecott yes. Award winning. Uh, and then the character from that is Peter, who's uh, an African-American boy who explores his neighborhood during the snowfall. And there's more books about him as well. Uh, there's about six of them. Our favorite is Peter's Chair, which we started reading when we were preparing for Kid Number Two. The idea of adding, you know, a sibling into the situation. There's a big conversation about his work at the time. It was considered a breakthrough and revolutionary because, you know, every protagonist in a kid's book at that point in North America was a white kid, and he, Ezra Jack mm. Keats himself, who I was surprised to learn was not. Uh, black but is a no i he looks like a white dude he is absolutely yeah he looks like uh he he looks like einstein (laughs) more laid back einstein uh yeah so i was uh i was i was a little bit surprised to learn about that um and there's a bigger conversation to be had about sort of you know the place of a white person uh telling stories of of um you know racialized people you know and whether or not he does it in an effective way or it includes things that are unique to those people's uh situations and and existence in North America which I think is worth talking about but we mm. do not have time for that right now but I just love his work it is absolutely beautiful illustration the stories feel real mm-hmm. the families feel alive and they're just like they're real stories where where it's about exploration in small moments that happen when you're a child that just seem like mm-hmm. everything, like walking in fresh snow or being upset that someone is coming and taking things and you don't really understand why. Yeah. Love it though. I remember the snow day, the snowy day just because of the snow suit. Oh, like it stood yeah. out. It's like a little like so European much. sort of fairy. It looks like right? a Polish fairy, which I guess makes sense because I believe Keats is, is Polish. Yeah. Polish Jewish. Uh, 
there's that pointy head okay. that like is a almost archetype of like children's like hoods and stuff in in Eastern European sort of culture. Yeah. Which I think is hilarious and wonderful. I do like the little pom-poms that kids get to have on their snowsuits and things. They're just Very adorable. cute. Anyhow, we will move along. I think that's uh, that's it for us. Do we have any final points to make about... That's it. You know, the legendary illustrators of our, of our childhoods. I would just like to say, I, I'd like to see that if we have learned anything from these illustrators and authors, is to not shy away from tough subject matter and mm-hmm, darkness absolutely. because that's where some really rich storytelling comes from and there's lots of evidence that says that young kids can take kids it aren't stupid. no they're very intelligent they're very resilient they're emotional beings that are going to clue into the emotions of these books why are we shielding them from these things you can talk about really difficult subject matter with kids in appropriate ways and pretending that bad things don't exist is not going to and help just you. like uh, giving giving manifestation to the dark feelings that they feel that they might feel like they have to hide otherwise mm-hmm. but they can find an outlet for in stories i find is wonderful our oldest has latched onto the grinch um and that redemption story arc recently oh that's nice and I find that fascinating. Uh, so he plays around being an evil Grinch at first that then learns how to be good. And for some reason, that that transition of being doing something wrong but n- being able to make up for it seems to be resonating with him, uh, which I found fascinating. Hey, that's, that's great. <laughs> yeah. So this has been a literary Dork Matters episode. Uh, we try to throw these in there after we do a mm-hmm. few too many pop culture ones just to show you that we are educated, that we classy. We read books sometimes. That we read good and everything. But I mostly just faked it. I don't know how to read. And until next time, <laughs> thanks for thanks for listening along. Uh, let us know what your favorite kids' books are at everyone at dorkmatterspodcast.com or on our socials, which is at dorkmatters pretty much everywhere. Yeah, let us know what your favorite books are, what scared you, what you love, what doesn't hold up, what does. We'd love to hear it. And until next time, dork to the dork dork. Dork dork. Thanks for listening to Dork Matters. If you like the podcast, subscribe, give us a rating, and tell your friends about us. If you are a fellow dork and have a dork issue that you think we need to discuss, tell us on our social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter. You can also check out original art and other content from Ben and myself. We'd like to say a big thank you to Yabra for the use of our theme song, Dance, off of their Astral EP, as well as a thank you to Jess Schmidt for producing and editing our podcast. Thanks, Jess. Dork Matters. This podcast is created on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Nations, which includes the Siksika, the Begaini, and the Gaina. We also acknowledge the Stony Nakoda Nation, Sutena, and Métis Nation Region 3.